Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. You can't turn on the TV or the radio or any news source these days without hearing about coronavirus and the COVID pandemic. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Brian Pian. He is an infectious disease expert, and he's been here in practice in the islands for almost a decade and a half. He's currently working at Infectious Disease Hawaii, or ID Hawaii, right in the Medical Arts Building, right across Thomas Square from Straub Medical Center. And he's in the office. He's actually on the line tonight in his office, talking with us about what's the latest going on with coronavirus. What is he seeing in the hospital with people who do wind up getting sick enough to be admitted? And what's going on with vaccines? Might we get one sometime really soon? So thanks for joining me today, Dr. Brian Pian. Thanks for having me, Kathy. Now, we've heard it now. Everybody knows it now. Coronavirus. This is a unique situation, a novel type of virus that we've seen similar viruses in the past. The common cold is a type of coronavirus, but certainly not the virus that is out there circulating right now. What is so unique about this particular virus? Well, it's similar to the original SARS virus, um, uh, Kathy, that originated in China, associated with live food markets. Um, It's what's called an envelope uh, RNA virus uh, and similar to two bat coronaviruses. So it, it causes SARS, which is severe acute respiratory syndrome, which causes uh, inflammation and damage to the lung, um, causing us not to be able to oxygenate, oxygenate or breathe, um, which can be very life-threatening in, uh, in a um, minority of cases. So when we talk about this episode of feeling like you just can't breathe. In fact, some of the classic symptoms that I've heard are that people actually suddenly go from I can breathe to I really am having trouble. And we find clinically that their oxygen levels are a lot lower than we might expect. What are the symptoms of someone who might be developing or have had exposure to coronavirus? And what is the trajectory of their course if if they get exposed to when they start having symptoms and hopefully not, but sometimes requiring hospital stays. So if if I was in a room right now and I got exposed to someone who had coronavirus and maybe I wasn't wearing appropriate mask or whatever the situation might be, from point of exposure, what happens next? Well, Kathy, the, the symptoms can range from having no symptoms, which is being asymptomatic, to having very severe symptoms. And for patients who become symptomatic, it usually starts off with nonspecific, what we call flu-like symptoms, including fevers, chills, muscle aches, um, just malaise, not feeling good, weakness, headache, dry cough, uh, sore throat, fatigue. So that sounds pretty common. And how long would it take in an average exposure for someone to develop those sorts of symptoms? Would it be within like a couple of hours of exposure or might it take a few days? What time frame are we looking at? That's a great question. The usual time frame is about two to 10 days uh, after exposure uh, and uh, when to, and, and until the patients uh, start exhibiting symptoms, if they're going to exhibit symptoms. So that explains why they've talked about, you know, if you've been exposed or you think you've been exposed, stay home. And I know that 
certain guidelines the CDC had previously said 14 days. Now they've looked at that quarantine period as maybe 10 days for certain people. But that might explain why. So if you if you say, hey, I was exposed to somebody at a party Friday night and by Sunday I'm not sick, that doesn't mean you're out of the woods. You could potentially, for up to 10 days, start to exhibit these symptoms. That's correct, Kathy. And, and some patients don't have any symptoms at all. And a few of the other symptoms I, I forgot to mention are uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. These are all also common maladies that people get. Uh, chest pain, loss of taste or smell is also, is also unique to the uh, coronavirus. Yeah, there have been a couple of reports of folks who say, you know, one of the first things they noticed is that they couldn't smell anything. And along with that goes the loss of the loss of taste. So they've just noticed, hey, this food doesn't seem the same way that it used to be. Does anybody else taste anything different? And no one else seems to experience the same thing. And so it becomes a concern that uh, that certainly could indicate someone has been exposed. So let's say that you get a mild case of coronavirus. Maybe you do have some symptoms. You're not in that, quote, asymptomatic group. You have some symptoms, but it's not that bad. If you have any sort of the symptoms like you described, you kind of want to keep to yourself just in case. Because as you mentioned, it could be other things. People get other symptoms like nausea and vomiting from other reasons, food poisoning or things like that. But you really just don't want to expose other folks to this because that's really the concern we're seeing is the spreading to those who would be more vulnerable. So if you were to have gotten sick with a mild case of coronavirus, from the date at which you develop symptoms, how long should you steer clear, stay in your own space, and kind of self-quarantine? Well, Kathy, it used to be 14 days is, is what the CDC said, and recently they changed it to 10 days of quarantine. But you, you were, the point is you really want to think and be in in touch with your body, and if you think you're not feeling right or you might have symptoms um, of the coronavirus, you definitely want to isolate yourself from other people, uh, including other family members that, that may not have gotten ill or that you've not been around, and contact a uh, health care provider and, uh, to see if you need to undergo testing. So... If you are at home and you do undergo, well, let's just say you do the testing, you find out that you're positive, what's the likelihood that other members of your household are going to be positive if they stay in the same space? Even if you're isolating in one bedroom or one area of the house, what's the likelihood the other family members are going to get it? You know, that's a great question, Kathy. I don't know the exact percentage um, in my experience of, of coming across patients over the past eight, nine months. With it, I asked them where they might have gotten from, who's sick at home, who they've been around, and and it, it does vary quite a bit. Um, where um, from having most patients or household members infected to to very few, and and having only one uh, person infected. So, and it, it depends on how close in contact they come to each other. Um, some people have completely different work schedules, so they're they're just not around their loved ones. Um, very much at all, even though they live in the same household. So it really varies. It sounds like it could be anywhere from nobody in the household getting it to everybody in the household getting it. Now, once you, well, let's talk about the testing for a moment, because if you're symptomatic mm-hmm. and you do testing, people have heard about the nasopharyngeal swab. There's also a nasal swab testing. There's antibody testing. What should you do if you're trying to test for an active infection? 
That's a great question. There are more um, testing sites available. There are free ones down by the Waikiki Shell uh, near the airport. Um, healthcare providers, and you don't, uh, and and in places you don't even need a doctor's order, uh, just to make it more accessible. Um, free testing to make it more accessible. There's antigen testing. Um, there's it gets it gets very confusing. All these these testing platforms, um, but basically there's the most common tests are. PCR testing, which is a DNA amplification or RNA amplification, uh, usually from a nasopharyngeal swab, which is a deeper swab, often done by a healthcare professional under full PPE. And there are um, more anterior swabs, which can be done uh, by the patients themselves. And and uh, the sensitivities show that it's pretty good um, compared to uh, the more deep gold standard nasopharyngeal swabs. Um, and uh, and then the, the antigen may be not quite as good, uh, but something that could possibly be done at, at uh, collected at home, kind of like a, a pregnancy test. Uh, but but the the gold standard is the nasopharyngeal swab. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the different types of testing. What does it mean? Should we be testing for antibodies? And then we're going to be talking about the vaccine. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, the Kahala Hotel and Resort, and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Brian Pian on the line from ID Hawaii. He is an infectious disease expert who has been here in the islands for almost a decade and a half, and he's taking care of a lot of our coronavirus patients that are right now in the hospital. So we're going to talk some more about what these symptoms are, who needs to be in the hospital, and what are we going to do when we get a vaccine, which is seeming to happen sooner than we might have expected. So right before the break, we were talking about the different type of testing. And you mentioned that there's PCR testing, that's the nasopharyngeal swab or the nasal swab, and that there's other types of testing out there, antigen testing, maybe not as accurate depending on when you do it based on your exposure as doing some of the other what we call gold standard testing. There's also serology or antibody tests. Is that ever helpful to determine if somebody has an acute infection or if they're sick right now, or is that particularly helpful just to to find out if they've had it in the past? That's a great question, Kathy. Um, So the antibody test is also called an IgG. Uh, I often have patients ask uh, to be tested. In my mind, I think it's it's best for um, epidemiologic studies to see who's been exposed to the virus. Uh, But the experts are are very careful to say that it does not uh, um, guarantee that you're immune to the virus. And it could have been that you, uh, if you have antibodies, you've likely uh, been exposed to the virus and been infected at some point in the past um, during this uh, epidemic, but it doesn't tell you exactly when. And it doesn't mean that you're immune and, and that you don't need to be vaccinated, but it just shows that it, it implies, it, it indicates that you have been exposed and infected um, at some point uh, to the um, coronavirus. Do they do any IgM testing? I sort of differentiate for folks that, you know, IgG is the antibody that goes on and on and on. So the G stands for mm-hmm. goes, and IgM kind of moves along after a few weeks. So do they do any IgM testing at all? They don't. I don't think it's 
ready for prime time. I don't think it's that reliable. But in general, generally speaking, the IgM indicates acute infection, whereas IgG indicates past infection, which may be recent um, infection, but it, it, it's produced later than, than the IgM, and the IgM goes away, but the IgG stays positive. Goes on and on and on. That's how I remembered those in a in medical school. Well, it certainly sounds like for those folks who, even if they do test positive from previous exposure, that's the big question. What do we do about immunity? Who's immune? Who is not? And that's going to bring us to talking about vaccines. There's some exciting news. Pfizer's vaccine is going to undergo FDA evaluation December 10th. Moderna's vaccine is going to undergo FDA evaluation December 17th. I think the Hawaii state has already ordered almost 5,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And this is going to hopefully be shipped once the emergency use authorization is allowed. So we're looking at a very quick, rapid development of vaccinations. But, you know, it's interesting because I was just reading an article that said a lot of decades of research have gone into what has now been fast-tracked for the vaccine. That although people think, well, hey, we got a vaccine in, you know, nine months or so. There's actually a lot of work that was done in the background, not predicting this, but sort of done in advance for looking at vaccinations of other types that has sort of helped us to expedite this process. Now, the vaccines that are out there have undergone some clinical trials. They've gone through phase one, two, and three clinical trials. Any thoughts on what your general idea is about, do you think the vaccine is something that will help protect the vast number of folks that that need it, and you know, it's, I'm I'm signing up. I want to get it as soon as it's available. I think it's going to be a great uh, advance to try and prevent people, particularly those at high risk, from getting exposed and potentially having adverse courses of illness. But what are your thoughts on the vaccine? Well, absolutely. From what I've heard so far, the, the data. Uh, regarding the Moderna and the Pfizer uh, vaccines uh, look great, 94 to 95% efficacy in getting the coronavirus um, through this this novel um, uh, method of using messenger RNA to, um, to um, produce the viral spike protein to stimulate the body's immune system to, to make antibodies against that spike protein. They're not viral particles. It's not the entire viral particle. So you're not getting infected with the virus. You're just making that spike protein that um, confers entry of the virus. Um, but the efficacy, suppose, I haven't seen the data, Kathy, but um, supposedly it's uh, reportedly 94 to 95% uh, efficacious. Um, the side effects are primarily flu-type symptoms. I mean, and that usually just means that the vaccine is working, that it's stimulating your immune system, and, and, and as a byproduct of that, People often experience flu-like symptoms, a sore arm. But so far um, that we know of, nothing based on a trial of thousands of patients, nothing too serious. Well, and I know that they've trialed it on, I think both of those trials had 30,000 patients each. That's 60,000 folks. You know, and, and just to reiterate, similar to the flu shot, you can't get the flu from the flu shot. You can't get COVID from the COVID shot. It's meant to, it's not an actual virus that we're injecting. It's meant to help your body produce those antibodies that can help block the virus from causing infection. So it is something that 
Uh, some folks always say, hey, every time I get a flu shot, I feel like I have the flu. And I say to them, good, that means the shot's working. Because those those low body aches, myalgias, those, those just those fevers that you might feel for a day or so, I've gotten that at times when I've gotten a flu shot. And, you know, to me, that's just my body building up protection. And it's a good thing. So some of those, some of the rates that I've seen of the the side effects from the shot are pretty minimal. You know, it's like less than 10% of people have any reaction. Mild headache goes away pretty quickly, not very serious as far as reactions. So certainly something that I think is going to be an advance. And if enough people get immunized, we will start to see hopefully life return a little bit back to where it was, where people can start going out and having gatherings and doing things that we all used to take for granted. I know that the primary focus for the immunization in the first wave of of vaccination is going to be some of the folks living in long-term care homes and those that are in healthcare and first responders. As what we've seen in the data has suggested that most of the people who are getting hospitalized with severe cases tend to have certain risk factors and tend to either be in group living environments coming from long-term care facilities or they're in unique circumstances that put them at risk, which brings us to what it's like to take care of coronavirus patients in the hospital. So, you know, I know that some of the treatments have changed over the last few months based on what we've discovered that works and maybe doesn't work for some folks. You go to the hospital every day and you see some of these patients. What is it like? What do you see when you take care of some of the coronavirus patients in the hospital? What sort of conditions do they have and what is that what is that like? Well that's that's a great question, Kathy. You know, over the past eight, nine months I've had the the privilege and uh the unfortunate privilege of taking care of patients who have been stricken the most most severely with COVID. And you know, I would start by saying that the treatment for COVID for the vast majority of patients is supportive. Um, but for those patients who are sick enough to be in the hospital um, with oxygen saturations that are, that are low, um, they're, they're often struggling to breathe. They're scared. They don't know if they're going to live or die. Um, they were usually in their usual state of health before that. Um, and it's just, it's just tough to see patients in a struggle like that, uh, and it's just something that we might take for granted, um, uh, like breathing normally. Um, just You just see people really struggling there, and, you know, you, you try to give them the best medication, to, the medic- medications and treatments that you think work the best, and you hope for the best and try to encourage them. Um, but they're also isolated. They can't see their loved ones. Their loved ones can't visit them. Sometimes they're talking to them on, on, uh, on their tablet or or, or mobile phone, but it's just not the same. They, they don't have that um, that human connection, that touch that, that they're used to, and, and it just adds compounds to the ordeal that they go through. Are you seeing some of the folks who come in with coronavirus wind up getting other secondary infections? Are we seeing that they may develop a viral pneumonia, but then they also develop another bacterial infection at the same time? Occasionally, and we do usually cover them with antibiotics just on the off chance that they may also have a concurrent bacterial pneumonia or develop a bacterial pneumonia. Um, certainly, patients who have been in the hospital for several weeks can start de- developing healthcare-associated uh, pneumonia. So pneumonias, bacterial pneumonias from, from being in the healthcare setting, usually very weak and debilitated, um, making them susceptible to bacterial pneumonias. And we're usually on the on the lookout for those and trying to to treat those um, and and prevent those from adding 
further upon the, uh, the lung damage that patients experience. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we're talking today with Dr. Brian Pian. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what, what some of the treatments are available for those patients who get diagnosed with coronavirus, both in the hospital and also if they happen to have a need for different types of treatments out of the hospital as well. And we'll talk some more about what the future might look like with not just this pandemic, but maybe another one that you never know could come around the corner when we least expect it. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Brian Pian on the line. He is an infectious disease specialist here in the islands for almost a decade and a half at ID Hawaii. And right before the break, we were talking about what are some of the treatments in the hospital. And you mentioned, Dr. Pian, it's generally supportive care. So oxygen, if someone needs it, there are some medications that have been approved, remdesivir. Uh, Some people are using convalescent plasma. Some of the studies say these things work. Some of the studies say maybe not so much. It's really hard to to do real-time studies and to know what would help a particular individual with their condition And sometimes you just want to try whatever you think might be possible. Now, there's also some new outpatient treatments, a monoclonal antibody that's come about. And that's something that, you know, might help some people who could be at high risk for going into the hospital. Have you seen any information about that sort of outpatient treatment? Yes, Kathy. We're, um, many of the infectious disease specialists are are discussing with the some of the major healthcare centers like Hawaii Pacific Health and Queens and Kaiser um, as to the appropriate use for these monoclonal antibodies. Uh, they recently received emergency use authorization or EUA um, from the FDA to be used um, uh, for patients. So they're not FDA approved, but short of that, the FDA provided this emergency use authorization to use these monoclonal antibodies. Um, the first is Regeneron, um, which is two antibodies, two targeted uh, monoclonal antibodies that I'm not going to try to pronounce um, uh, because I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but um, I believe uh, Kaiser is starting to use that. Um, as far as I know, Queens and uh, Hawaii Pacific Health are using the other one called Bamlanivimab, um, and they seem to work about the same. Uh, again, that's also a monoclonal antibody. Uh, these are designed for mild to moderately ill patients, so not sick enough to be in the hospital, not having low oxygen levels. Um, and it's been shown to, in initial studies, to reduce the need for an emergency or hospital visit um, uh, from 6.3% in the placebo to 1.6%, so needing to come to the hospital uh, or ER uh, less often. So on on the basis of that, um, we're starting to offer it to patients, um, uh, outpatients who may have certain risk factors that place them at higher risk to develop severe COVID. So having being aged greater than or um, uh, equal to 65, or having um, being obese with a body mass index greater than 35, having any kind of chronic heart or lung disease like COPD and heart failure, uh, diabetic. Um, patients who are immune compromised, so organ transplant patients, patients on strong chemotherapy or immune suppressant drugs would uh, be uh, a consideration and 
and potentially qualify patients with kidney disease, um, congenital, um, and also um, uh, children, uh, pediatric patients who are uh, 12 years or older and 40 kilograms who may have congenital heart disease, sickle cell, um, cerebral palsy, um, severe asthma, or maybe uh, have a tracheostomy or, or on a ventilator. So these are definitely some folks that would be really ill, and you'd want to try and avoid having them be in the hospital, if at all possible. So if they qualify, they might receive a recommendation to have this monoclonal antibody infusion with the hopes that they don't wind up having to be in the hospital, the hospital being reserved for those who have severe cases who can't manage on their own at home and need some extra medical personnel. What are most of the common things that you see in the folks in the hospital that make them need to stay there? Is it usually the oxygen requirements or the intravenous infusions of medications or what keeps somebody in the hospital with COVID longer than we might expect? That's another great question. So usually their their low oxygen level or hypoxia um, uh, keeps them in the hospital just to watch, make sure they don't, they're doing okay and that they, they don't get worse. And um, the IV antiviral medication called remdesivir, which became FDA-approved a few months ago, um, is a five-day treatment given once a day for five days, and usually patients uh, remain in the hospital during those five days. Uh, and, um, and they're also usually getting uh, steroids as well and, and possibly convalescent plasma. Uh, usually they stay in the hospital for those five days. Some of them feel well enough that they'll want to forego the last one or two doses of the remdesivir and, and be discharged, but it's not something we can give as an outpatient. Well, and given what you've seen over the last many months, it seems like so much more than starting in March. It's nine months, but it feels like longer than that. When you think about this particular situation with the pandemic, do you think this is the last of pandemics that we'll see for a while? A lot of people started talking about how this was sort of reminiscent of about 100 years ago with the Spanish flu from 1918, 1919. But do you think as as microbiology goes on, as we encroach on natural habitats, as, as humanity expands in populations, are we going to see more of these when the coronavirus pandemic is over? Should we be on the alert? Should we, on, we be on the lookout for what's next? Well, that's a, that's a great unknown question. Um, there's, there's so much we don't know, and there's a lot of factors, and it's just so hard to predict uh, the next when uh, the next pandemic is going to occur. And very uh, few of us were alive back during the Spanish flu, uh, 1918, um, 1919. Uh, I mean, hopefully it's just a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-hundred-year uh, type of thing. But, but, but the factors that contributed to the last pandemic or a little, the society's changed so much in, in those hundred years. So, um, and there's more travel, more crowding, um, more encroachment on natural habitats um, that, that's uh, more conducive to the spread of, of a pandemic and these novel viruses that none of us have, have seen um, and none of us have immunity to. So, um, and, and the, um, the social Intercon- interconnections and the worldwide travel, worldwide travel, um, 
make it very easy for a virus to spread. And this is such a sneaky, um, efficient virus uh, that that affects patients asymptomatically and spreads to other patients. Um, doesn't kill right away, like like or as fast as Ebola. Um, so it it allows it to keep spreading and infiltrating communities, and it's just um, let's say uh, a difficult, um, sneaky, pesky, uh, more than a nuisance type of virus. Well, and I want to thank you for going to the hospitals, taking care of our Hawaii folks here who unfortunately are sick enough to have been exposed to and hospitalized with coronavirus. And thank you for all that you do. And thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. That's Dr. Brian Pian of ID Hawaii. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more about what's happening in the world of healthcare right here in Hawaii. See you then. We revisit an archival interview with Dolly Parton about her music and family roots in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, where she first broke into song and found her sense of style. Plus, conversation with the late historian Charles Wolfe about ballads and songs of the Appalachian South on American Roots from PRX. Beginning Saturday evening at 6, following Weekend All Things Considered.